Hello, I'm Regina Botras and this is Backstage, where we talk with the who's who on stage, in dance, comedy and performing arts, speaking with the leading theatre makers of our times and how they came to the stage and what drives them and inspires them. And my guest is Gareth Davies. He's an actor and playwright and has written and performed for the Black Lung Theatre Company, Belvoir Street Theatre, Malthouse, and many, many more. Some of the things you might have seen him in, and I have seen him in, are, well, not the Cherry Orchard <laughs> at Melbourne Theatre Company, but the Government Inspector, the Rover, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, Peter Pan, as you like it. Uh, they call him Mr Glamour, which he also wrote, The Seagull, as you like it for Belvoir, the literati, and so, so many more. That's only just touching the surface of the, the productions he's been involved with. You may have seen him in film and on TV. Please welcome Gareth Davies. Hello. Thank you. I'm expecting cheers after that amazing um, introduction. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Cheers from me, at least. Um, and you're in the production that has just opened at... Um, the ensemble benefactor but we'll get to that before we do how did you come to the theater in the first place was it a creative household were you like you know do you remember the first moment you went that's what i want to do i remember i did come from quite a creative household but i never thought i was going to be an actor for some reason and then uh, i always assumed i was going to be some sort of poet i guess or maybe a philosopher um and i certainly became neither but during university, I went to Monash University and I was studying an arts degree and bit by bit I, I went to fewer classes and, and they had a really good student theatre um, community there and bit by bit I went to less classes and more and more I got into the theatre. And next thing I know, that's all I do. Uh-huh. And here we are all these years later. <laughs> so what kind of creative household was it? What, what did your parents do or what was it like? My mum was a um, teacher and she taught art and drama and um, very much both of my parents were really into English and we liked reading a lot and books mm. and literature and I think we also travelled around a lot. So I was born in Holland and I lived in America and a couple of other places and I think there's something in when you're a kid and you have to move around you are kind of reinventing yourself a little bit more as you try to ingratiate yourself to whatever new community you're suddenly thrust into being a weird um skinny little american kid in adelaide or wherever it is and i think that must have been part of it just immediately like from the get-go i was uh trying to change myself all the time so it makes sense looking back on it that that's now what I do for a living okay okay so what about the the poetry and the philosopher were there you know certain people or or do you bring that into your writing somehow or not at all (laughs) (laughs) I would love to say so I think that was more kind of me just being 15 years old I love poetry and I love philosophy but it reaches a point where you kind of start butting up against your capability and um, I think it takes a little while to get there and then eventually you're 20 years old and you go I've stopped understanding what I'm reading (laughs) Um, so you said that you were more and more getting in into acting and I wonder like what was the point of training and when did that kind of happen for you so i was doing a lot of student theater and i again i wasn't serious about it Mm. um but i was just really enjoying it and really 
kind of feeling stimulated. More than anything else, it was kind of the constant stimulation. And so my training was a little bit from that uh, and university, but mainly it was just doing it. So we started, um, we made a theater company and we started writing and making our own shows. And initially it would be to six people and then (laughs) 16 people and then 60 people. Um, And that was really our training was being right in in the middle of it, Um, which is in some ways really good, I think, because trial by fire, you learn so Mm. much from doing. Um, And then it reached a point there where I went, okay, there's certain gaps in my knowledge that I really have to just kind of as intelligently as possible circle, be a little bit, uh, well, be brutally self-critical at Mm. what I need to work on. Mm -hmm. Um, And that happened. But I do believe that the best way of learning how to uh, act is to be thrust into that fire time and time and time and time again. Mm. So is it, was it kind of easy to do then? Is it something, how has the theatre like scene changed since those early days for you? The independent theatre scene in Melbourne was really taking off when we were coming out. We was part of a group called The Black Lung and there was a Hayloft project and there was a bunch of other um, people who were kind of, we all had quite a lot of, you know, fury and righteousness, which sometimes was misguided, but also it was, um, we were inspired by it and I think other people were inspired by it too. Um, So, and I really loved that and I look back on that time is very very difficult we built a theater by ourselves we lived in it we weren't making any money we were spending all our money doing it Mm. because we were fundamentally believers in it and it wasn't a job for us it was um a way of connecting with people and 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 howling and um (laughs) falling in love it was it, it was it was a big experience a stimulating experience uh rather than a job and I, I, I suppose that is still happening now, but certainly it happens less and less to a 40-year-old yeah. when you go, God, I'm so, t- I, I, yeah, I need to get it together a little bit. Um, but I think like any artistic pursuit, uh, I don't think, f- I think very few people or very few successful artists get into it as a job first. I think there is a need that drives you to do it mm. and then you hope that if you keep pursuing it with a sense of fury and urgency and self-righteousness in some ways, that you'll still, you'll be able to quit your day job. Mm. (laughs) Which um, I assume you have. (laughs) Did you ever have a day job, by the way? Oh, yeah, definitely. definitely. (laughs) I moved a lot of boxes. I was big big into packing boxes and shipping them to various places. (laughs) Um, So let's talk about, Benefactors and this production at the Ensemble. It's a, an Olivier uh, award-winning production um, or, or story. Do you want to sort of set the scene of, of this play and and who you are? Yeah, so it's set in the late 60s. It was written in 1984. So it was written just as kind of Thatcher was about to become elected. Um, it's set in the late 60s. It's about two couples um, and there is a housing scheme that mm. one of the couples really is working on, social housing. And so the question right in the middle is about need, want, the desire to help, if that's even possible, the responsibilities we have. Um, and then more personally between the two couples, there's a certain 
push and pull of codependency, on uh, resentment, on need. And um, what's really interesting about the play is uh, you're watching these four characters really wrestle internally with each other. And it's mm. funny and it's bitey. And sometimes they say things that are mean or unintended. And sometimes they say things loving and unintended. Um, but they're really wrestling with how to how to help and be with each other, really. So they're, um, a, a, you know, a couple, two couples. Are they also within that? I mean, they're, I, I'm assuming they're kind of middle-class idealist um, people who want to make a change. And how apt this sort of still resonates today, I mean, in a push for social housing and that sort of thing. What, what are the, I guess, what is your particular character's ideals? Like, is that one, you're one of the dreamers? Yeah, so the four characters all come from very different perspectives. They're very cleverly mm -hmm. written in that they feel very real and very of the same class, but they have very different perspectives. So I play the architect who's building yeah. this tower and very much the optimist and the dreamer. Um, and thinks big, but probably is very blind to what to actual the suffering that's in front of him or what it means. Um, so for my character, I'm dreaming of those big towers in the sky. And it, it was kind of a utopian ideal, some of the what became these pretty dreadful towers. I mean, the, the, the most yeah. horrific one being Greenfell, which then, you know, just Fine. terribly built, supposed mm -hmm. to be an answer, but just a... a, a a terrible problem in its own right. Um, but the initial uh, idea and ideal, particularly from my character, is to build housing, which is a community. Mm. Um, and that's just my perspective. And on the other side, we have uh, other characters who think that that's impossible or who are a bit more knowing or a bit more cynical. Um, and the answer is, of course, it's really hard to find what the answer is. Mm. Uh, maybe there is no answer, but um, we've got to keep finding it. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's sort of, as we I, I sort of hinted at, the, the times today, this sort of ideal um, face with reality and money and all the other things that come into play with the, um, when talking about housing. Uh, do you, are you forced to confront you know, the reality of those that are suffering throughout the play and how do you, does your character kind of deal with that if you do? My character throughout the play um, has such strong ideals and in the way that many idealists suffer from, I guess, keeps coming up against the harsh realities. And yeah. so I guess what how a person changes when confronted by by the harsh realities of the situation is different. Mm. And from my character, he tries to keep that dream alive and he keeps shifting the goalposts. He keeps okay. changing his eye, not just, um, but I think for him, it's not just about uh, changing the ideal or, or, or it lowering. The goalposts don't lower for him. He changes what he believes he always thought was the answer. Right. Um, so, for instance, at the beginning, all he knows is he's not going to build towers. He's going to build something far, far better. And, right. of course, as the play progresses, he starts building towers. <laughs> um, but And how much he knows that's a bad idea is kind of up in the air. I think this play is very, very clever 
in that the characters are very contradictory. And so, for instance, my character, I think 80% of him still believes that building towers will be the best possible thing and a utopian ideal, but 20% of him knows that it's going to be a disaster. Right, right. So are we, have we got a set that is like what is it called mid-century modern um uh 60s uh like set like to, to talk about the world you're in and and are you doing it in um accents we are we are we're very much trying to set it in that time it felt mm. really important mm. um because it, not just to kind of really set the scene but also sometimes when you see it, it's there's extra resonance when you see something set 40 years yeah. ago and you go huh that's about today, <laughs> you know, that's still a question. Um, and so Nick Fry is the designer and he's done a terrific job. It basically all set, it takes place within a 1960s middle-class kitchen, but there's a real brutalist aesthetic going on um, behind it and behind the walls. And in terms of the play itself, uh, there's it's in a kitchen and in the kind of, constant rush sitting down for tea clearing things away pouring wines kids running in kids running out imaginary kids in this case um <laughs> it's a busy household mm, and mm -hmm. it, and and yeah we really set the scene we're wearing the costumes we're speaking the words and the accents that they were looking for <laughs> do you have trouble with accents i mean i can never do accents it's like one reason probably i didn't you know, pursue acting, but um, you know, what are the techniques for doing accents? I mean, maybe this is a, quite an easy one for you. I don't know, but no, I think no accents are that easy, really. I mm. some people are really natural with them. Yeah, uh, I know it's easier for me now because I've had to do so many, so I know what my problems are. I know what my blind spots are a little bit, and I know the kind of um, shape my mouth. This, Accents, it's interesting. A lot of it is about Ooh. getting that initial mouth shape, where your right. tongue sits, where your jaw sits. And then if you can get that down, it becomes much easier to get the specifics of each mm -hmm. noun and consonant. Mm -hmm. um, but accents now, you just got to work on them like, yeah. like anything. And we had a really good teacher as well. So Linda came in, our dialect coach, and she'd come in once a week and just go, uh, okay, you're hitting that a little bit hard or you're doing this, you're doing that, and just mm. to keep on it because it is just a, like anything, it, it, it's a process. But, yeah, mm. I'm certainly, some people have 18 accents in their head all the time. I don't. I maybe have two accents in my head and as soon as I learn a new one, <laughs> one just disappears forever. Was there, was there a, has there been a role that you've had to play that maybe not necessarily a, an accent but finding this sort of character that is, inside of you or, or what kind of how do you find the character um for roles and and what it has been something difficult i love finding characters i think that's the most enjoyable thing i think you've mm. just always got to first of all everyone's got their own process and no one really knows how to do it my friend said something this something once and i thought it was true he's like every time you do a play or a film or whatever it is you have to learn to act again and it's true and you never have any idea. And being lost in the dark is, is part of it. But I love it. I just really try to think, what are the circumstances that would make me behave in that way? Uh, um, and I think uh. coming, hopefully for me coming from that perspective, it's really going, I have the capacity to be a hero or a villain. I, I have the capacity for great cruelty or great kindness, as we all do. 
really try to embody those circumstances that led me to behave in this particular right. way. So not thinking about the character and what they've confronted, but something in your life that would pr- provoke you to act like that. I've not thought of it like that. I think that can be helpful, yeah, I, definitely. Because otherwise you get, there's the temptation to make it a very kind of thin look at a person. Mm. Um, but if you consider that I have that capacity to do that thing, what are the what are the changes that would have had to occur to my in my life that would have led me there? Yeah, I, I think hopefully you get a little bit more empathy and understanding um, in terms of the psychology of that person. Mm. And somehow the psychology of you too, obviously. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I think yeah, it's all. I think a lot of acting it, it all stems from a similar place of. uh, people who study psychology in terms of you're just curious about why someone's behaving in the way they're behaving Mm. Um, and you want to unpack it a little Mm -hmm. bit. When I was looking around, um, you know, online, I saw that you were part of some panel. It was probably a few years ago now, but on the anxiety of performance or the stage, not stage fright, but sort of around that, like do you – can you talk a bit about that? And do you like? Does that happen all the time? Are you nervous all the time performing, or not so much? Definitely, <laughs> definitely. It's really it's strange, and almost every actor is. You know that thing that a lot of people say you need a thick skin for to be an actor. Mm. I wish that was true, but unfortunately, you really need a really thin skin because oh. you've got to be so available to your emotional state you kind of have to be raw and i think um to be thin-skinned is to be a bit raw and to be available to to kind of hurt a little bit Mm. um because otherwise if you build your walls too high you won't be able to access that when you need to in your job Mm. so it's really interesting i remember the first play i did and it was with people who'd been doing it for decades and some of the top biggest most extraordinary actor actors that i've ever seen or worked with and I just remember going oh my god they're terrified they're just as terrified as me Mm. um which is true also terror um and anxiety they make you they can they can stop you they can make you put your head in your sand or they can also make you work really hard Mm. so it's not all bad I guess Mm. um but yeah everyone's still yeah show me a truly confident actor and I will show you a charlatan. <laughs> I think I heard somewhere something written something along the lines of if you don't have that feeling then you kind of don't care and if you don't care no one else will care sort of along along the way. So um <laughs> back to benefactors. Um what have you learned about maybe you know the attitudes towards housing or or you know what have you learned along the way? Anything to do with housing, like everyone you speak to in Sydney, I'm sure is just like, it's the most infuriating, sad, (laughs) um, hopeless topic of conversation. Um, Yeah, uh, yeah, it is. It is infuriating. But I think we kind of do know what the answer is, but the answer will uh, require everyone to pitch in, Mm. not just people involved in social housing, but... um, we, we'd have to make the big houses smaller, fundamentally, yeah, right? right. Um, and if we're not willing to do that, which it doesn't definitely seems we're not, yeah. then we won't really be able to do to to, mm. to fix it. 
But uh, yeah, like anything, like anything political or anything social or anything moral, it seems like what we lack or like climate change or whatever it is, it, it, we kind of know the technology required. We just need the will to do it. And we mm. just need greed to move out of the way yeah. and then things would be a little mm. bit better. huh? And not not lose the hope or the, you know, the ideal of it as well and Maybe, yeah, how far will you lower your standards to... <laughs> yes. yes, yes, yes. How far and how far are we as a society um, willing to lower our standards of what we expect people to be to live in? I suppose, yeah, and exactly what you said. You're talking about community housing, so it needs a community behind it. It can't be the individuals. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. On that note, Gareth Davies, I think we got very philosophical. If we not did poetic. get the philosophy. I'm not sure about the poetry, but we got the philosophy in there a little bit, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Regine. See you later. Well, that was Gareth Davies from Benefactors, which is by Michael Frayne. And this was written, as you said, in the 80s, uh, an Olivier award-winning play. It looks just terrific. That's Benefactors on at the Ensemble Theatre till the 22nd of July.